It's Tuesday, September 23rd, 2021, and you're listening to episode 578 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 51 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. I'm still Wayne. My name's Chad. <laughs> Why are you laughing at? Are you sure? Because... because I, okay, I adore Chad on a level that I can't quite explain because there are certain things in this world that don't like me that I'm fascinated with. Okay. And there is a level of Chad that just is disgusted by the gluttony of intoxication that we have engaged in. And the fact that he loves and is disgusted with me at the same time is one of my parents, and I cannot help but seek his approval. Dude, huh. so, see, I get it, because I don't like being around drunk people. I never have. What I missed out on here is... Before we came to record at dinner, Dan and Brodor imbibing a little bit, and apparently Dan pushes Brodor on the floor at the restaurant. <laughs> oh my god. Dude, it, it was okay. Anybody else, and I swear to Christ, I would have punched him in the <laughs> face. But it's Dan, and it there was nothing meant by it. It was just <laughs> funny. Holy shit. So I'm trash, right? And I've got a belly filled with sushi. And I'm mad at our server because they didn't bring my bowl of rice that I had asked for, but they didn't put it on my bill, so I didn't get upset about it. Oh, he didn't get rice. That means he might not fart. Oh, no, there's... No, he's gonna fart. No, I'm gonna sh** myself. But then all of a sudden, Dan said something. I said, do you know what preparation looks like? And I was like, (laughs) preparation H? And you were like, what? And I said, not like this. I was, we were sitting in a booth, and yeah. Broder's sitting on the outside. I'm sitting on the inside. So I brace my arm against the wall and just stretch out and shove Broder onto okay. the floor. But here's <laughs> the thing. If you're in grade school and you're sitting with a group of people that are not your friends, not your associates, yeah, not yeah. people that get you, and they do something like that, it is at your expense. This was like, Dan was like, he knew... That, first of all, Brodor could take it, even though it was on my broken elbow, you cunt. (laughs) Stop climbing ladders and hitting yourself with phones. But more importantly, it was goddamn funny. And the thing is, there was that giant guy. That's one man's opinion. (laughs) There was that giant guy. Okay, I am the victim here, Chad. I'm the person who was pushed on the floor. I think Brodor, as the victim, gets to decide whether this was a welcome or unwelcome advance. And there was a giant guy. That, too, is one man's opinion. (laughs) There was a giant guy with the cute girlfriend who was probably in her early 40s and daughter who was in her late 20s who was kind of hot. And that guy got up and he looked at me and I swear to Christ, he was like, do you want me to punch that guy in the face? And I could see it in his eyes. And I was like, oh, no, dude, that's my buddy. It's cool. Don't get into a thing. Yeah. So (laughs) fantastic. I thought it was hilarious. Broder thought it was hilarious. All the parties that matter thought it was hilarious. I was in the bathroom, so I didn't see it. Yeah. But. (laughs) No, I, I don't even remember what the relevance of that was. Well, what the thing that bothered me, though, is that the really, really beautiful woman who was two tables over, not the table with giant guy and attractive girlfriend and daughter, but the next table over, 
there was a really, really beautiful young woman who was on a date with a guy who was obviously just trying to f*** her and was out of her league. And I just felt bad that she could have had me, but then you ruined that by embarrassing me. And that's Dude, what made me all right, here's the thing. I got a girlfriend. You're married. We can live our life honestly because we don't have to worry about what beautiful women think anymore. Well, wait, hold on a second. So Chad's married. Yeah. Wayne's Wayne's married. Mm -hmm. Both have been in committed relationships for some time. I think it's reasonable to consider that they also, like you and like me, don't have to consider that. Yeah. They have nothing to lose for my antics. So again, one man's opinion. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? What are we talking about gaming? All right. So here's what I want to talk about gaming related. This is going to be something of a a small topic round. First of all, it was five bottles between them because Dan had two bottles and I had three bottles. Oh, they snuck in. So there was five for Uh sure. All right. So I want to do a small topic roundup because I've got a bunch of random gaming things on my mind. The first one I'm going to start with was there was a phrase that I think we used in a recent episode. I'm not positive because I know what has come up at the gaming table. I don't remember if it came up on the show or not, but we are not the first, second or third people to use this phrase. And I saw somebody on Facebook, not in our Facebook group, but they were in another Facebook group asking what this phrase meant because nobody bothers to define it. It's one of those terms everybody uses or a lot of people use. Nobody defines it. So I want to take the time for anyone who's not in the know to define it. And that phrase is turn economy. All right. So we talk about how in games like D&D or Battletech or really just about anything, you can hit against issues that are related to what's called the turn economy. And someone, once again on Facebook, asked, what the heck is turn economy? May I make a distinction that may be, this may not be necessary. But sure, go ahead. There is a distinction between turn economy and action economy. Are we talking about going around the table and making sure that Chad's character has an action, that Wayne's character has an action, and that your character has equal action in a social encounter, are we talking about a combat encounter where, as a general rule, general rule, the players will have significantly more actions than the villains do? So to clarify here, let me differentiate that from what we talk about on this show as a spotlight economy. Ah, So the spotlight economy of everyone gets their turn in the sun whether that's in the course of one game or between many games to express their character, to develop their background, their personality. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about in the course of a combat encounter where there is structured initiative. So I guess what you're calling an action economy, but what does that mean? All right, let me give some examples from two different games. And I realize these examples are going to be a bit precise, so please do not strain the gnat to swallow the camel. Try and accept these as general concepts, even if under your exact edition of a particular game, this isn't 
100% correct. And next episode will explain what sprained the gnat to swallow the camel is. That's a Bible verse. Look it up if you want. If you don't, we're not a religious or political podcast. Strain the gnat to swallow the camel basically means that you're going to nitpick the little tiny things. Or look it up if you want. While choking on the big things. Yeah, or look it up if you want. Anyway, the point being, though, all right, so what a turn economy is, let's say you're playing a D&D game. And let's say you want the party to have this really cool boss encounter. And so you have a group of, let's say, six players. All right. I don't care if that's too much or too few for you, whatever. It doesn't matter. But let's say you have six players and you decide you're going to give them a boss fight against a middling aged dragon. All right. And you think that's going to be pretty cool. And you look at the challenge rating and you look at the level of the party like, yeah, this is going to be right up their alley. But what happens is for every one action the dragon gets, the party gets six. And so what happens is you get a thief who goes into backstab position with a bunch of attacks of opportunity. You get a mage who blinds the dragon. You get another mage who silences the dragon. You get this, you get that. And all these things have happened. And by the time it's the dragon's turn, even though on paper, the dragon may be more powerful than the entire party combined, the dragon is in such deep doo-doo that... It's effectively an ineffective enemy. It can't do much of anything. I actually had this happen in a D&D game recently, and it wasn't a dragon. I don't remember what the boss was. I want to say it was like some kind of bugbear chieftain or something like that, where on paper, it should have been an equal enemy to the party, just going by the challenge ratings of 5th edition D&D. But the reality was that by the time that they went through all their turns before it had his turn. They had already done this to it, done that to it, whittled away half its hit points. And by the time it was able to respond, it was under the effect of so many spells and so many secondary powers. And it was trapped between so many different combat maneuvers and feats and whatever that it was basically dead. And so it never represented a significant threat. For anyone who's not in D&D, let me give you an example from, say, Battletech. Let's say you put one really mega badass clan mech out on the field against a lance or two lances of Sphere mechs. And on paper, because of the technology distinction of the weight distinctions and whatever, it looks like this should be a fair fight. But the truth is that once you roll out initiative, the clan mech makes its shots. But by the time you get to the party, one person gets in its back arc, somebody else knocks it over, somebody else, you know, the next three or four mechs whittle away its armor from the same angle. And all the things that this pilot would normally do, like walk away, or if the mech has jump jets, jump away, or respond to it, or, oh crap, the second person hit me hard enough and I failed a piloting check, my mech fell over, I would normally stand back up, but there's half a dozen more mechs that get to go before I get a turn. And so by the time that the turn of the enemy rolls around, the turn economy means that basically, even though theoretically the party, the good guys, are weaker, they have had so many opportunities to screw with the bad guy 
that the bad guy on their turn cannot resolve more than a tenth of these problems. And so they basically get boxed in and treated as a joke. There's a video that I'll try and link in the show notes if I can find it of a real world experiment with this. And it was done in Japan where they took three master swordsmen and they put them against, I believe it was like a hundred or 150 people. They just gave random fencing foils to these people had no idea what they were doing. And what they found is that when these individuals came at the three master swordsmen one-on-one, they got defeated. But when 10, 20 of them came at once, the master swordsmen can only defend against so many people. And just the sheer economy of having that many people coming at you from every angle overwhelmed them. Uh, an example in D&D might be, imagine you're a 20th level character. Well, let's say the GM puts you up against 100 or 200 zombies in a giant zombie swarm which is something that actually occurred in the older editions of Castle Ravenloft, it may be like, well, no problem. We can fireball or chain lightning or whatever you're going to do, these zombies, and we're going to cut through this. But by the time it gets to your turn, you have already lost three-quarters of your hit points. And the best the cleric can do, because they can't turn undead at this point, is heal you to try and save your life. And then there's another 100 or 200 zombies yet to go. You're screwed because you cannot outplay their sheer volume of problems. It's like the death by a thousand paper cuts. So for anyone who's not familiar with the phrase turn economy. Oh, I thought you were going to say not familiar with the phrase death of a thousand paper cuts. No, I'm not going to define that. If you can't picture that, you've never been paper cut. Because I swear I about die from one. But... That's what a turn economy is. So like I said, I saw somebody on Facebook asking this question. It wasn't directly in response to our podcast, but I know it's a phrase we use, whether on the show or just between each other at the gaming table, because it's come up in my West Marches game. I mean, it just seems common sense. You got a hundred rats biting you. You're doesn't matter that you can crush a rat. You're going to eventually get killed. Yeah, exactly. Even if they only have a 10% chance of hitting you, And even if they only do 1d4, 1d6 damage, sheer 120 hit points, when there's 100 of them, and maybe you've got a fireball or something that would wipe the area clean, but you're way down the initiative order, it doesn't matter. It's why I found having the one big bad that people fight that works well for books, that works well for video games, doesn't really work well for role-playing games. Depends on the role-playing game. Yeah. Typically, though... Have your boss have some minions. Exactly. Spread things out. That's the solution I found is that, for example, in a game like D&D, there might be a big bad, but just to break up the turn economy so that other people can try and distract the, the protagonist or dig out the big bad or mitigate some of these issues, there's going to be two, three, or four little minions who might in and of themselves be of no particular import or no particular remarkable power, but they can at least break up the turn economy. These are pennies getting pushed into the mix before the dollar bill goes. Systems that do this really well are like powered by the apocalypse systems, mm-hmm. where you attack, you don't get a... There's no initiative. 
So, right. You don't get a 10 so, or something. Your side effect is the bad guy does something to you. Okay, so think about it this way. D&D, or games like D&D, basically where there is a turn order. Is, okay, this is going to sound so It's a game. What I mean by that, it is very gamey. Yeah. It's not like when we go to dice and we start rolling combat and stuff. There is role-playing in. We can role-play. Yeah. We can have fun. We can do actions in character. Turn order is a way to ensure that everybody around the table gets an action. But in D&D, it is also, in games like it, it is a game. Almost like a board game without the board and all that sort of stuff. We have abilities. We have rules. We're interacting with the rules. It is a giant abstraction into an algebra problem. And we are trying to work the math yeah. on that algebra problem. I and mean, that kind of takes the do off the lily. If you want to look that up, you got to turn safe search off. But so, <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. Mine was a Bible verse. Yours is turn safe search off. I know, right? <laughs> so the thing with like D&D like games is that it's... <laughs> <laughs> now Broder's looking. I don't know if he's looking at the Bible verse or the porn, but I, I have I don't my think guess. it's the Bible verse. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's not the Bible verse. It, it's shin kicking. Yeah. So it's a race. We're trying to drain the math numbers down faster than they drain our math numbers down. And I don't say that to say, oh, well, you know, there's nothing to D&D except math and math is boring. Not at all. I mean, it is what it is. It's supposed to be that. It's great that it's like that. It is this abstraction into algebra and that we are working with and that in our minds, we can turn that into a beautiful layered colored story, yeah. this tapestry. It, it's neat. And then we can blend that together. Right. And there are issues with turn or like I want to throw a thousand rats at you and that sort of thing. My solution to that is the same solution I would have in something like Blades in the Dark. So. Looking at Blades in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse or any of those kinds of touchy-feely hippie games, in D&D, there are the monster, the hit points, the hit point race to burn down the monster, blah, blah. In these more storytelling games, it isn't like that. We are setting a scene, and we want to tell a story in this scene. Now, the story we are telling might be, we are killing a dragon for these reasons, or... The story that we are telling is this dragon stole a magical ring, which in turn corrupted it and turned it from a bad dragon into an evil, conquering, horrible dragon. And we have to make this moral choice of do we kill the dragon and take the ring? Was the ring due to us or do we convince the dragon that it's being corrupted or do we find some other way? Anyway, we're telling the story. Death, violence, killing can be absolutely a part of it. But it is about a scene, right? And it is about solving this moral dilemma. You can take that into D&D. You have your dragon. Really cool set piece battle. All the numbers work out on paper with the algebra problem that it is going to be a tough fight that the player should be able to win. They go for it. And you find that they don't because the turn order problem. They get more attacks and they have all this other yeah. stuff. But just for the simplicity of the conversation... They get their one boom attack, six players get their six attacks, and then they just burn it down. So what you do, you don't have to have mooks are, are a good thing. You know, uh, lieutenants and, you know, other monsters come out. Sure. That's a good idea. Absolutely should do that. But don't make the encounter about burning the dragon's hit points down. If that happens, great. But make a story out of it. Why are they there? Because there's a dragon and because there's dungeons yeah. and dragons on the thing, they are there to do something. 
The dragon is not the objective, shouldn't be the objective. The dragon is a situation. Sure, that's another way of fixing the problem, is maybe the dragon's not evil. Maybe the dragon is good, but what you're trying to solve is not killing the dragon, it's freeing the dragon from a curse. And the dragon is merely an obstacle to ending that curse. And there's a series of objectives that you have to fill to getting to it. I remember going way back in my life, there was a Battletech tournament that I was in that at least I was told at the time was going to become canon to the Battletech universe. Now, in retrospect, to be blunt, I think I was being lied to by the person that was running it, despite the fact that they were employee of FASA and AWOL or whatever. I don't know for sure. I don't want to accuse anyone of anything, which is why I'm not going to mention a name. But there was a wildly undergunned inner sphere force of 8 Max that was supposed to run a bomb past 10 clan mechs and get it into a factory and blow up the factory. All right, now everything was against us, but we managed to get past it because of the fact that we were playing with an objective and the objective was not simply kill the enemies. I think the problem you hit when the objective is kill the enemies is in many ways, 10 level one enemies are more dangerous than one level 10 enemy. Once again, because of turn economy. Let me give another example of this from a different game. We're going to go with good old classic Savage Worlds. Let's say on the first attack, the 10 versus one, and the one is 10 times the power of any of us individually, you put him into Shaken. Well, he's your bitch now. You can do whatever you want to this enemy until they break Shaken. And if every round you can put him back into Shaken, he's forever and ever your bitch. You know, because you can keep doing whatever you need to to whittle this character down. Because all you got to do is hit him once well, and assuming one person can roll those dice and the dice are on your side, then everybody else can just keep henpecking this thing until it dies. And the turn economy allows that. Well, once again, if he had three or four mooks or something like that with him, just spread out the problems, to spread out the targets, to spread out the complexity of the situation. Now, in your case, I think what you're describing is something that's very similar to adding mooks, except the mook in this case is not a thing. It's a concept. The concept is not that there's one level 10 enemy. The concept is that apart from the level 10 enemy, who in fact might be a friend who is under some kind of like dark magic or whatever, has a separate problem that requires a separate set of actions and abilities to deter. And so in a way, by concept, even if not by presence of character, NPC in this case, non-player character, you have created two enemies. One is the dragon, one is the curse on the dragon. And so there's one group of you that has to keep the otherwise good-aligned metallic dragon from killing you all with this breath weapon. But there's also an objective of you don't want this thing dead. You want to break the magical bracelet on its wrist, which has a separate set of hit points or dispel magic requirements or whatever it may be. And so basically you're introducing a concept in place of a mook, but the concept itself becomes a sort of mook all its own. My question is this. It sounds to me, and maybe I'm mistaken, that you're looking at this from the perspective of the game master. 
So if you're running a game, let's just say D&D, for example, action economy is in the favor of the player characters. Only if you've got less enemies than the players. Yeah, I mean, if you have more enemies than the players, then it's in your favor. I mean, going back to the original Castle Ravenloft module, there is a room, I don't remember how many, but it's like the Sea of Zombies. And the Sea of Zombies create the exact same action economy problem in the opposite direction. If I'm sitting there, we're playing D&D, and the Game Master says, okay, there are 100 zombies. Oh, okay, cool. You know, that that's going to be pretty tough. And he starts rolling 100 different <laughs> separate initiative yeah. dice. I'm just going to I'm just going to go. And I'm I'm going to look yeah. at, the, at the driveway. Is anyone blocking me in? No, cool. Catch guys later. Well, and I recognize there are solutions that exist between the problem of the action economy or turn economy and I'm literally hitting the road. Yeah. And of, also, you, you could abstract them into a group. And also for people listening, because there are some real heavy duty rules, D and D people here who are been screaming at us for the past 25 minutes, basically saying, well, there are swarm rules. And if you did the CR, right, if you balance the characters and you balance the CR, then I'm one dragon. It should be a challenger and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, you're right. They're right. They are right. I can hear Gage (laughs) screaming. That's how the shaking works. With the new Savage Worlds, you just, your big bad would just roll, and it's a really easy roll, and then it has an action the same round now. The, well, he's the, right. They fixed well, it. Once it the shaking was broken. I, I, and and I need not. to stress. And I'm really trying. I'm not trying to dig into the pedantics of the right. rules of a single system. I'm trying to explain a concept. The concept of the it, rule it, economy, yes. not the ups or downs of different versions yeah. of DMZ. Yes. The, there's, I mean, we understand. It is. There are people who are going to scream, and they're right. Well, this is handled in the rules yes. here, yeah. and you're right. Yeah. And I, have I, had and this, I have no excuse. I have had yeah. this happen in multiple systems wrong. that aren't D&D, that aren't Savage Worlds, that aren't yes. you know, a Powered by the Apocalypse. It's something that just can it happen happens. to you. Yeah. We understand the concept of Proverbs. Yes. And it sucks when you've spent the time to think of something and you want them to really hate this big bad and they're going to struggle with it and then you roll the worst initiative of them and they cripple it yeah. in one round. Sauron was an impressive fight in the Lord of the Rings movie because he was fighting one person. Imagine if he had people coming at him from the back, the sides, from every which direction. His big sweeps with that morning star are going to get rid of a certain number of them, but when he's on the back swing, you know, when he's come off that swing, what stops the guy behind him from taking a polearm and cutting off the finger that has the ring? And the answer is functionally nothing, you know, or at least attempting it. Yes, I recognize there's rules, but the point is we all understand Proverbs. If I say two things, practice makes perfect, we understand what that means, I can simultaneously say poets are born, not made, we understand what that means. And this is the same sort of thing. If I'm not trying to get caught in the pedantics of rule system, yeah. I'm trying to describe an abstract issue right. to define yeah. a term. Every counter to this discussion is, well, that is handled in the rules in this place. You are correct. That's not what we're talking about. Right. Well, so just simply because something is handled in the rules, in my experience as a game master, when you do a big fight that is the single main villain against a party of people, regardless of how 
powerful that villain is in comparison to the PCs, the PCs are always going to have significantly double, three times, four times more actions than the actual villain has. So oftentimes what happens is, even if you have an impressive, high armor class, powerful villain, you as the game master end up sitting on your hands while the PCs go around the table attacking, 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 attacking. And as a game master, that's really boring. Well, let me add a simple reality into that, which is as a player character, I have one thing to study, which is my character sheet. Assuming I'm that sort of player, I know the crap out of my options. I know that if this happens, I get a reaction action or or an attack of opportunity or whatever. I know this spell does this, blah, blah, blah. As a game master who's trying to run the entire game, especially if you are not a super high memory, high organized thought sort of person, you're not going to know your villains at the rules level the same way that the player characters know their characters. And so they are going to always squeeze one more drop of orange juice from that orange than you thought was in there. All the while you're orange, you're only squeezing three quarters of the juice out of it because you've got an entire game to run. Oh, just give your big bad mist form. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know what? But even in the turn economy, that falls apart. If you've got a mage who's got counter spell or dispel magic or gust, yeah, gust of wind. I mean, once again, cooked to flavor. You can disagree with me in pedantics on why that wouldn't work in a particular edition of D anD. d But the concept I'm describing, if you're honest with yourself and you've been gaming for more than ten minutes, you know it's true. What you were saying. Mike was actually, I don't exactly remember the words of what you said, but so I remember my, my response to it. So. My, my point <laughs> is this, is that if I'm the game master. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. It, and, and I'm running a monster. Too. And let's say my monster has four attacks. Yeah. Right. But I'm gaming for a table of five players and each player gets two attacks. Mm-hmm. So that's 10 versus four. So regardless of how kick-ass my hit points are or how kick-ass my armor class is or how kick-ass my attack bonus is eventually the players are going to wear me down if we're equitable if it is a fair fight so something that a game like fifth well, then edition, it's not a fair fight <laughs> so something so something that fifth edition does mm-hmm. which is amazing is if you're fighting a creature that like a dragon for example they will have a layer effect. So you go and you fight the big bad in their layer. And on initiative 20, at the top of the initiative every round, the big bad's layer has some effect so that the bad guy, the villain, gets additional action. The other thing that it does is it has legendary encounters. So you have monsters that are so kick-ass powerful that they have significant and extra reactions to the player's ability. So that Chad may go, and then I can say, okay, Big Bad takes a turn. And then Wayne goes, and then I say, okay, cool. Big Bad's going to go ahead and do this ability, 
which costs me two turns. So though now it's Dan's turn. Dan does his action. My monster doesn't do anything because I've wasted my reaction budget. But now it's come back to my turn, and I'm going to take two attacks. I'm going to attack Chad, and I'm going to attack Dan. So mechanically, the rules should be designed in a way that the game master has an equitable number of actions in the encounter compared to the PC. One thing I love that masks does when you inflict something onto the villain, you know, you're inflicting a consequence on the villain. The villain immediately gets a reaction to that consequence. It's one of those games where you, as a GM, you're not rolling dice. You're not declaring what as much of what it does, but that way it does feel like a little more back and forth. Chad's character does this amazing hit on the bad guy and now he's angry. Well, now he does an angry action. Here's a list of things he can do. And that keeps it flowing back and forth. And let me stress, I'm sure that anyone could say, well, this particular system or this particular enemy or whatever, that this doesn't apply because they get free reactions to everything you do or they get bonus actions. And that may be a very fair solution that a very fair solution to the action economy problem may be that your big bad gets a very unusual action economy where every time you act, they get an out of sequence reaction or they have some ability to defy the normal initiative order, which is why I can't stress enough that what I'm talking about here is I'm trying to define a general concept not a universal truth that is specific to every encounter with every villain in every game. Oh, yeah. We think you defined it 20 minutes ago. We're just talking about systems we think fixed it fixed and did it, a well yeah. job. And that may, be, job. that may be a fair answer is, for example, that if you get in too close of a range with a hydra that has 15 heads, it has one, re- and I'm making this up, but it has one reaction per head. And so it doesn't matter if there's eight people in your group, it's going to have a chance to bite every one of them when they try to mess with it. And that's fair. That that may be a fair solution to this conundrum. The thing that really struck me about what Mike had said is that when you put out your solitary big bad and the turn economy thing, and the players burn them down, it's boring for the game everybody. master. Everybody. 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 Yeah. yeah. Everybody is bored. And I don't have... That problem. I have a lot of problems in my game. I don't have that problem in my games, whether I'm running D and D or something artsy or whatever. Because think about our Blades in the Dark game. Well, you don't and, run singular big bads. No, I don't. And even if I have before, I absolutely yeah. Wayne's played in games where I have before in D and D where everything is defined yeah, and sure. we are doing yeah. the rules. Well, and, and even in Blades in the Dark when we did that big fight with the tall boy, we did a lot of things before we got to the tall boy. But there's only two people there. No, I, there was. Eventually, we eventually were all in the you room. were all in the room, and there were still well, no because like Booker he just beat us up before okay. that. I mean, that was one. Okay, but fair it enough. Was more yeah. than one. But, but, okay, yeah. and look, look what happened. I mean, between in the turn economy, no, no, we had Here's that thing, thing so whittled down. That's because I'm a genius. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm gonna play along. Go okay. On. You believe that you guys had him so whittled down? You believe that you? It's like, man, we burn this son of a bitch down. Yeah. Think about the fight. This is how I run fights with singular guys. All sure. Right? What you did was there were problems that you had. The guy didn't have hit points. 
Yeah, yeah. There's no hit point. There's no clock where you have to fill the clock and then he loses that much blood and he's dead. There are things that are happening. He was turning on parts of his armor. He had automated defenses, the, the shields that block things that came up. He was going to do things. How you guys defeated him was not drain his hit points and was not overwhelm him with actions. How you defeated him is how I wanted you guys to defeat him. I wanted you guys to work together as a team. But you work together as a team and you found different objectives. You saw what I was putting out there. It's like I said, he is going for this. This is going to be really dangerous, guys, if he gets this turned on. Oh, well, I'm using my action to stop this thing. Yeah. Okay, this other part comes out and it's blocking the shot. Okay, well, I'm going to do this to rip off that part. And every time you guys did an objective, it didn't matter if there was one of you. It wouldn't matter if there was a hundred of you. It didn't matter. I would have made a hundred objectives well, each for each right, of right. you to do. It ticked off a clock and eventually the clock didn't matter. I wasn't even paying attention to the clock. In fact... I don't think you guys filled in the clock. It got to a point to where it was obvious to the table and to me that the scene had reached its climax. This guy was defeated. You guys put in the work, you put in the effort, and you did what I wanted you to do, which was come together as a team and start doing your cool shit. And then you killed him. You are 100% right. But I let, am a genius. But, but let me let me point out, it was a great fight. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. You did an outstanding no, no. job with that. You guys did an outstanding well, okay, job with we're, that. We're all perfect. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm fantastic. We're all you guys gods among perfect. men. I know, right? I complimented you on this scene in a prior episode. You did. A couple of episodes back. But let me point out two things about that fight. Mm. One is, in a sense, you turned that tall boy into my Hydra. You mm. gave him 100 heads. Right. Metaphorically speaking. Yeah. But you gave him, it was not one enemy. It was many enemies. It was one enemy in the form of the tall boy. But you had the shields, you had the weapon systems, you had the reactor. There's always different things going on. But secondly, you had another advantage, which is the fact that we are cooperative gamers. Mm -hmm. That you had a plan, we were playing into your plan, we weren't rules lawyering you. Mm -hmm. If we had been rules lawyering that situation... I have no doubt we would have annihilated you on turn economy within the first, maybe yeah. second round. Especially in that system. Because but, but that's not how we are. No. And maybe therein lies another circumstance or situation or solution to this. Blades in the Dark is, is pro-player. Yeah. And it, well, it is explicitly anti-GM. Well, even that aside, my point is that you understand that when the big bad shows up, okay, you want to win. That's human nature. But attempting to use the rules to exploit every possible advantage you can get. That's really not, because I mean, let's look at Blades in the Dark. The tall boy doesn't exist in Blades in the Dark. No, it doesn't. That's an, a transplant mm -hmm. from Dishonored. Dishonored, yeah. And so it was a situation where one, like I said, you had the many-headed Hydra. Your villain was actually many villains in the form of one collective, so to speak. But secondly, you also had the advantage we're not jackasses to you. Mm -hmm. you know, we got what you were trying to go for. I loved what you were trying to go mm -hmm. for. I was sold You right. know, in, in that buffet of ideas. This is what I'm scooping up. You know, This is not whatever the heck it was from Nutty Professor with right. the salad bar. <laughs> the, the, the sausage and the ground beef. I'm going for this stuff, even though my character wasn't present. And so we didn't rules lawyer you with it. Whereas if we had, and in some cases, you know, I, it's different strokes for different folks. What I loved about that whole situation 
is that my original plan was you guys break in like sneaky break into a police station and steal this armor or steal sabotage, sabotage it, it or something like that. I think that was kind of where we we're going. The idea that there was like a sort of pseudo hangar in the back for this essentially special Mac, police yeah. forces thing in back. That was Eric's idea. He said something to the effect of, well, I bet they have like a hangar or something for it. And I'm going to sneak in the the window the skylight above it, you know, it, and I'm like, none of that existed. When I walked in the building that day yeah. to run this game, that did not exist. And, see, and it is, was amazing. And this is so where I think a turn economy can still exist in narrative system. Let's take fate. For example, maybe there's one big bad and there's five, six, eight of us, whatever. By the time we get to the big bads turn, even if we haven't done significant damage, let's go full narrative here. We have tagged the scene and tagged the villain Freon knows what fate is. You know what I'm talking about. In so many ways, that this villain has no prayer of rolling anything successful against us other than at best trying to tread water and get back to the surface for a gasp of breath before we go again and tag them with a thousand things where they can't act or can't act in any mathematically plausible way. And we could have done that. But the, the advantage you have as a game master is the same advantage we have as a player, which is we are enjoying the game better right. because we're not having that degree of rules learning competitiveness. Mm-hmm. We're all working towards a common goal of telling yeah. a cool story. We are not trying to get the best bang for our in, buck. In D&D, I am the director. This is the set piece. You are players in my game, and I want you to defeat my character in this set piece for my story. Yeah. Now, obviously, you don't have to run it like that, but just as an example. In the games I run, even when I run D&D or I run more narrative games, it is us. We are making this scene, yeah. and I want us to come together and do it. And I'm giving you guys hints, and I'm giving... And when I give you guys hints, and it makes it too easy for you, then I just expand the bad sure. guy a bit on the and bad the, I think the turn economy affects you less. Yeah. Well, and especially it, in place because there's no turns. Well, it affected me less when I was running Skies of Glass mm-hmm. because of the fact that, well, first of all, Skies of Glass is such a violent, brutal, lethal setting. That, mm-hmm. But that aside, it was because of the fact that we have, I don't want to strain my arm patting us on the back, but we have a group that's mature enough that we're willing to sacrifice optimal outcome for the sake of the story that we buy into what the GM is doing and that we participate in that rather than trying to derail that. You know, some groups play like that. Some groups don't. When I run for my West marches game with my family and uh, my friends and whatever, it's a little bit different, not because they're bad players, not because they're competitive players. Well, they need more of a framework to be blunt. They're they're not experienced enough to be rules lawyers. But the fact is that they don't understand the unspoken realities of gaming enough to say, oh, I see what Dan's trying to do. We need to buy into this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to cast a spell because I get that the story would be better if I didn't. You go into the tavern. There is a shady man in the back who is under his cloak eyeing you. And he has a hint of familiarity. And the player's like, oh, well, I definitely don't want to talk to that guy. What a weirdo. Let's go to a different inn. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Guys, come on. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so it's a different circumstance. They aren't rules lawyers. Right. They're just 
God love them. Some are more. They some are tropes. Yeah, some are experienced. Some of them are inexperienced. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're not trying to be disruptive to me. Mm-hmm. But I had that issue. You know, once again, where I had them, they're very low level. I don't remember what level exactly, but they were fighting a bugbear chieftain who should have been more than a match for the party. But their ability to use the turn economy, where they were able to box this guy in, where he had this magical effect on him and that magical effect on him. And if he moved, the paladin got automatic attacks of opportunity on him and this, that, and the, I don't even remember all the details, but this guy was so boxed in that by his turn, it's like all he would do is sit there and change his own diaper because he was screwed. In, I mean, he was just done. When I run D&D and, you know, we're playing with the rules and the dice and all that sort of stuff, and it isn't like a touchy-feely game and we're not disregarding all the rules, I like to run villains or combat encounters with wildly more powerful enemies than the party. I mean, just like there's no way that the party should be able to defeat these enemies or this enemy. It's just they're just not high enough level. They just don't have what it takes. And what I do is the same thing I do in Blades. Blades gives the advice of be a fan of your players, you know, be a fan of what they do. I'm not like, ha, 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 how are you going, first level character, how are you going to defeat this 12th level vampire? Ha, 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 you can't because I'm a dick. No, it's a matter of the 12th level vampire comes out and he's all this and then I describe it and it's like the door slams behind, ghosts slam the door behind you, you can't get out, what do you guys do? You're only first level. And I'm like, I don't say, well, what do you do? I'm like, okay, guys, how are we going to get out of this? What are we going to do here, man? This guy's going to kick your ass. And they're like, Chad, I don't know. We're first level. What do you think you're doing? I'm like, I don't know, man. Well, the sun comes up in like 10 minutes and then this guy's got to go to bed. So I don't know. We're first level. What? Well, Wayne has like, and I'm, yeah. people are going to be going after me for the, well, Wayne has dimension door. So why don't we sneak the, the thief behind or the bard behind him? And the bard will talk about how his mother's a whore. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, well, he'll come after him. And then the maybe, and, and Brodor's like, well, I'm playing a fighter. And then when he goes after the bard, I can be like this intimidating shout thing. And they'll come after me. And, you know, it's just like, oh man, that's great. And we start bouncing ideas. Yeah. yeah. To make it work. And I'm going to say, peel some posts. Yes, we know Dimension Door is I, I know. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't even know if there's We're just describing concepts. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, the bard will absolutely call his mother I, a whore. I think this yes. is where I'm going to close it out on. <laughs> on his mother's a whore. Is, well, yeah, that's a given. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, that's a given on Brodor. But. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so true. <laughs> but, but the point being, though, that I think when you're writing an encounter, whether it's for a cooperative group or a super rules lawyery self-defending group, whether you have an antagonistic relationship or a cooperative relationship with your players, I want you to keep in mind that now that we've defined action economy, action economy is a power all unto itself. That even if you balance the encounter in every other metric, if the enemy or the good guys the players are overwhelmed by the action economy, which once again, we spent this episode defining, then you have to understand that that is a mathematical truth unto itself that shifts the math. Mike disagrees. No, 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 no. Players are like children. Abuse them. Don't. (laughs) Because (laughs) what? 
When you can agree with half of what he said. (laughs) You do terrible stuff and you create terrible people. So don't. Okay, let me translate that in a way that doesn't involve criminal activity. You as the game master set the tone for your table. Right. And now sometimes players will respond to that. Sometimes they won't. It's why Broder doesn't have dysfunction at his game. He doesn't allow it. (laughs) But if you have the ability as a game master to set the tone for your table, then set it appropriately that you're not out to get the players. And in return, if they're decent individuals, they will chill out on trying to be out to get the game master and say, what is the game master trying to do with this scene? And it's not my job to derail it in as few moves as I possibly can. I disagree, but in a good way. Okay. Only from how I run a game. Yeah, that, but once again, but you, I, I, I want you to dis- derail my scene because collaboratively. But you have the fortunate reality of not being in an antagonistic relationship with your players. Very true. Yeah. The way I see it, and this isn't true for everybody, and this is not how everybody should run a game. The way I see it is I have a table right now with Eric, Brandon, Dan, Wayne, Mike, who are all exceedingly creative people. Yes. I mean, they run role-playing game podcasts. People look to them for role-playing game advice on how to tell a story, how to make characters, how to run games, how to play games. They've been doing it for years. They're great. I think I can tell a decent story. Sometimes I think I can tell a great story. Sometimes I tell terrible stories collaboratively together this table is going to tell amazing stories and what i put on the table i want you to derail not because i'm a masochist and because i think my ideas are crap but because i know that to derail my idea means you have to engage with it and it isn't actually derailing it it's making it grow and it's adding things to it and it's building the scene and it's this scene we we have together and our victories are together and our defeats are together and the, the pathos and change of the characters, and the arcs of the characters. We go on this journey together and that's what I love. Yeah. Cool. I hope whether this podcast was useful just for some advice on how to fix the issue or if nothing else, if you just didn't know what the phrase turn economy meant, I hope we've at least defined that for you. And as always, have a great week and great games and we will catch you next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2021. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.